welcome back to season two of the Human Instrumentality Podcast. My name is Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. In this episode, we cover the series finale of Satoshi Kon's Paranoia Agent. All spoilers are on the table. Human Instrumentality Podcast, Season 2, Episode 12, Rolling. Episode 13, the final episode. Ikari walks the streets of his 2D dream world with Tsukiko and Moromi by his side, basking in 1950s ambiance. Here, nothing can hurt him, or Tsukiko for that matter. Back in reality, the black ooze that was once shown in bat floods the streets of Tokyo. It bursts from subway tunnels and television screens, swallowing screaming civilians whole. While he watches in horror, Maniwa hears Ikari's voice on the radio wave. Maniwa broadcasts himself into the dream world on a black and white television, urging Ikari to return to reality. Ikari just chucks a rock through the screen, which earns him the adoration of the 2D townsfolk and a spiffy new police uniform. His moment of glory curdles when he spots a sickly misai in the crowd. In the real world, she lies on the operating table, clutching a photo of her and Ikari as a young couple. Ikari tries to distract himself at the bar, but Misai reappears as a young waitress before rapidly aging into her current self. Moromi leaps to confront her while Ikari and Tsukiko make a break for it. When Ikari catches his breath, he finds that Tsukiko has transformed into her child self, complete with a real pink puppy. The two watch fireworks together at a summer festival. Misai returns one more time to the dream world to say goodbye to Ikari, relaying his own words about not denying reality. Misai passes away in real life and vanishes from Ikari's dream. Disillusioned, Ikari smashes his dream world apart with a baseball bat until he, Tsukiko, and Maromi are back in the real Tokyo. There, Maniwa confronts Tsukiko with the truth, that she invented Shonen Bat as a child to avoid taking responsibility for the death of her dog, Maromi. Her father went along with the lie, and here we are today. As Tsukiko tries to deny the accusation, the black ooze surges toward them. Maniwa's magic sword is no use against the ooze, but a kaiju-sized Moromi shields Tsukiko and Ikari. The ooze and Moromi tangle into a single wave that washes away a montage of side characters. Tsukiko and Ikari retreat into the subways. Tsukiko drops her Moromi doll, who lands on the ground as a real dog. Tears streaming down her face, she rescues the quote-unquote real Moromi, only to be enveloped by the ooze along with Ikari. In a sepia-toned memory, we watch young Tsukiko doubled over from cramps and lose track of the original Moromi. Crouched over the dog's broken body on the side of the road, 
young Tsukiko begins to shift the blame on Shonen Bat when adult Tsukiko interrupts to cradle Moromi and express the guilt she couldn't face as a child. The specter of Shonen Bat fades, and the ooze suddenly disappears in Tokyo, leaving a ruined city in its wake. Two years later, Tokyo gleams in the summer sun, good as new, with all of the same bustling crowds and social anxieties. Ikari is still a security guard. Kawazu passes Tsukiko on the street, and they share a passing glance. Maniwa, hair white and wearing hospital clothes, writes a long equation in chalk on the sidewalk. When he reaches the end, he looks up in shock. At last, now that time itself has come to a halt, I am free to torment our listeners with an ad read. Ha! Nice try, Joseph, but you forgot one thing. The Human Instrumentality Podcast doesn't sell ad space. Think again, Ian. In my perfect world, the podcast is completely listener-supported. Why pummel them with corporate sponsors when I can use the listeners themselves? You don't mean... That's right, Ian. We've now launched a Patreon. So... If the listeners love our fine-tuned anime discourse, they can support us for $1 a month by going to patreon.com slash human instrumentality pod. It had better come with monthly bonus episodes. Indeed it does. And for $5 a month, I'll even read their names at the end of the episode. It's totally optional, of course. That is, if they don't want to be frozen in time forever not bad joseph but you forgot one thing oh what's that nobody is going to visit any websites or sign up for any bonuses as long as time is frozen you're trapped in this ad read with me touche you've outplayed me once again but i'll be back and so will this ad read Uh, so th- yeah, I-, I don't know exactly when this is going to pick up into the real podcast, but this is the second episode that Joseph and I are recording today. So it is likely that we'll both be maybe a bit more loopy than usual. But I would hope that, given the somewhat loopy nature of this series and this episode, that that will feel appropriate while we're talking about uh, the final episode of Paranoia Agent. Loopy. Ian, loopy. it's not loopy. It's it's better than loopy. It's goopy, baby. It's <laughs> covered in black slime, which is one of my one of my favorite things about this episode. Mm-hmm. Speaking of black slime, however, I just want everyone to know because I knew it would be loopy. I have <laughs> I have I I have I have a series of tools that you can't see that are at at my hands. I have my sparkling water. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have my spiked iced tea. From the local hard cider company, right? Mm-hmm. And I have a, a, a uh, now it's only three quarters full TJ's instant coffee. There's my black slime uh-huh. uh, right here. <laughs> um, I usually don't. That's your, that's your shonen bat. Your yeah. 
uh, and your two Maromis, I guess, or would the sparkling water be like the the way out? It, you know, I think the sparkling the sparkling water is that's got to be radar man, right? It's it's <laughs> Maniwa, right? Because like it is the thing that I actually need, but it's not going to help me, <laughs> right? The the coffee, of course, is pure apocalyptic power, and I guess a spiked iced tea. Yeah, that that is that is Maromi. I mm-hmm, think mm-hmm. Maromi being a little saccharin, like a little sweet in in this episode, but with a bite. But also at the end of dulling it. of the senses uh, in some way. <sighs> Look, some senses need to be dulled. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how does Satoshi Kon feel that way? Well, we know, given his biographical details, that he does on some level, and I guess this episode is an interrogation of which senses we can stand to dull and which we cannot right you know how do we want to take this do we want to do more of a a plot beat thing a character beat thing because i feel like you know i mentioned in the last episode that in the final three episodes it really comes down to the three central characters of ikari tsukiko and maniwa and they all get their own very significant beats in this finale but yeah, there's a ton of places to start because there's a ton going on into this episode. So I don't know. Dealer's choice. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, in the last episode, you talked about how there was that scene with the otaku that felt like a movie's worth of ideas in in 30 seconds, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think in the past on this podcast, I've talked about how writing these summaries for con things is really hard <laughs> because <laughs> he does all the things all the time. Mm hmm. It's not like Evangelion where like Evangelion was like not straightforward, but focused two characters entered a scene, had a conversation. The conversation had an arc and then we moved on to the next scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right. Not how con works, not how this episode works. However, given that there's like a million things going on in this episode, I think I want to start at the top with, one of my favorite things uh, about it, right? Sure. And again, we talked about it in Radar Man, how like, you, you know, that was Khan, I thought, doing what what he did with some of the sequences in Millennium Actress saying, I could be an action director, mm-hmm. right? Mm. The, the first half of this episode is him being like, I could do a kaiju movie. Yeah, yeah. I could do Or sh- just like, a disaster movie in general, right? You know, or a zombie movie. Cause it's sort of mm-hmm. like all of those, it's sort of like all of those things. This is, this is him pitching his Shin Godzilla. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And, and as, as like, I think on the podcast, the resident Kaiju dork, I think it's pretty great at, at that. Like for a guy who like sort of seems to reject spectacle, like out of hand as an idea to an extent, there's a, there's some pretty good, like apocalyptic imagery here. Like I, I like Menua on Tokyo Tower. The buildings are all blowing up. I like comically seeing all the characters just randomly get slimed. It's so satisfying to watch them all just get fire hydranted with sludge. Coming out of like everywhere, like every TV bursting out of like apartment windows. It's the the way that it seems to be like there's no place in society that you are safe from this thing reaching you, which I feel like is it is the the heightened version of the same kind of like Maromi mania and the like ubiquity of that image means that you are now no longer safe anywhere because you've surrounded yourself with that image. Cor- correct. Uh, 
And the fact that it's it's like kind of legitimately horrifying, like for a show that I sometimes feel is, you know, we talked about it's how it's very narrow on a bunch of characters and, you know, it, it's not exactly the most, uh, whatever the opposite of misanthropic TV show is, right. you know, like it, it, it just certainly has like kind of a cynical view of society. It, it renders the disaster like legitimately horrifying. It, the 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 goo like bursting up into the subway stations and stuff like that it does feel like really physical and scary you know yeah yeah it it, it does and I, I mean you say it's not misanthropic however i i would say this is sort of I, I what i meant to say is that it is it is not whatever the opposite of misanthropic is so it is misanthropic it's a double negative kind of situation i see you were trying to double lips me damn you yes what yeah. if like my favorite little like tropes in fiction is like the horror story that is just like say a nasty thing about a thing you don't like and then make it literal right sure and, and yeah. like so for all of the scope and effect of this sequence it does just kind of read to me like someone saying mass media is like having someone poop on you <laughs> right yeah yeah so i'm just gonna spray sewage out of every media outlet i can find <laughs> i did have in my notes that like this is what having like a what a bad day online looks like you know we're exactly. like like some awful topic and all of the vitriol surrounding it just exploding across like every crossway of, of life until it just absorbs like the entirety of the conversation, you know, everywhere you look. Were you there when someone figured out who the singer of Death Spell Omega is? I was. It was a lot like this. <laughs> The the sequence that I am always re reminded of the sequence I'm already describing real life as if it's fiction. Um, <laughs> uh, Cons the magic's working. You're, the yeah. line between like fantasy and reality is disappearing before my eyes. Do you remember the night that the Life of Pablo was released online? <sighs> yes. So this was after it had already been like premiered at Madison Square Garden and like streamed and then not released and not released. And then like leaks came out and then there was the Saturday Night Live performance that was supposed to end and then the album was going to drop. If I recall correctly, it did drop and then the link was broken. Oh my God. And the reaction online to me at the time, I felt like I was Maniwa on the Tokyo towers <laughs> and everyone was like running around the streets of the internet being like, where's my Maromi doll? <laughs> where's T-Lop? Where's T-Lop? <laughs> and then just the goo of that record ate us all up. And we, we've been living in, I'm a fix wolves, the society ever since <laughs> that record certainly was like being sprayed by goo have you ever seen godzilla versus the smog monster i have not no okay it, okay so brief diversion but this sequence i think is is a pretty direct reference to godzilla versus the smog monster which is mm -hmm. a, an interesting film in the series oeuvre it was by a director who never returned all of the godzilla movies are entertaining some of them are good <laughs> two two of them are art mm -hmm. one of those is the first one which is legitimately like an excellent film right yeah no argument here the the second one is godzilla versus the smog monster which is an environment doomer acid fucking damaged 
nightmare of a film with like it is it is the most out of pocket Godzilla movie that there is. It is simultaneously the goofiest and darkest one. Mm-hmm. It is bizarre and must be seen to be believed. However, one of the things that it was controversial and it was released because it's the first film since the original that showed humans being hurt by the monster. Wow. Interesting. By, by the pollution monster. And they're, they're mm-hmm. long, like very upsetting sequences of like people getting covered in sludge, um, people breathing in sulfuric acid fumes and dying yeah. in what is supposed to be like a kid's movie. It's really fucking tough to watch those parts of it. Out of curiosity, when did it come out? 73, I'm guessing. Let's wow. see if I'm right. How well have I internalized the Godzilla filmography? 1971. Okay. Okay. Pretty close. Yeah. Pretty close. Wild. Wild that I can do that even remotely that close. Anyway, this sequence to me is like a, I think a very direct homage to the, the heater attack sequences. Not that I have anything to go with that to tie into anything else. Just to say that like we think of Colin as like someone who like makes allusions to highbrow things. But I think that that seems so deliberate to me in this episode suggests that he's maybe not quite so arch as he would have people believe. Right. He is, he's willing to get down and dirty. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, even in millennium actress, there's a Godzilla stand in, you know? Sure. But it's sort of de rigueur there, right? He would have had to, right? It's like you did a movie about the history of Japanese movies and you're not going to put like a Kaiju in there. This is sort of like our country's thing. (laughs) Fair. Right. I'd be like, like, let me do a movie about American movies. There will be no superheroes or cowboys in it. It's like, no, like those are the things we do. Right. Right. That's that is a fair point just to suggest that that there is um, it is also not unique in his filmography to have some kind of kaiju, whether for, you know, self uh, driven reasons or as a a matter of necessity. Sure. How do you feel like he manages the the actual kaiju battle that we get for a a split second (laughs) near the end of the episode where we get the giant Maromi versus the giant toxic sludge? Um, Maromi versus ooze form shonen bat. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine for what it it's fine for what it is. I mean, it's very upsetting. Obviously, like like watching Maromi kind of like distort and melt and be assimilated with like the downtuned voice, right? Like yeah. is not like it's upsetting. Maybe it's a little sim- simplistic. Interestingly, I guess that was always how we thought the show would end. Like this was part of like the initial pitch was like, and it will end with like giant shonen bat fighting giant Maromi in downtown Tokyo. They they talk about this in the commentary and the producer like said to him like, really? That's what you want? And he's like, yep. Um, I feel like it's good to know that because this to me feels like a truncated version of what that could have been, you know, because right. they only get like really one traditional like showdown moment and then it immediately gets weird and body horror ish you know whereas we get almost a a more traditional big kaiju showdown in the middle of the city in paprika which i feel is absolutely building on the kind of thing that he's doing here at the end of uh of paranoia agent sure i think these last three episodes in particular do you do see him sort of like rev up for pair for for paprika Mm mm-hmm 
much the same way that like clearly like when he was doing Tokyo Godfathers, I think by the end he was already like his heart was already in Paranoia Agent. Yeah, it's really the only time you can't see some degree of like direct reaching for the next thing is going from Millennium Actress to Tokyo Godfathers. Right. You know, right. Every every other thing has some sort of obvious causal connection. Right. Whereas the the reason that I think that maybe there is such a sense of like split between those works um, is because it is going, it's trying to go in the opposite direction. It's like, well, I've covered famous people. Now let's cover the marginalized. Sure. But yeah, you're right. I think we, we can totally see reaching towards paprika by the end of this. He made an interesting point in, in the commentary of, of this episode, I think in particular where, where they talked mm-hmm. about like, Oh, you're such a workaholic. You're already, cause I think he does mention, he's like, Oh, and around this time I was starting a story road paprika too. And one of the producers says like, you're always going to the next thing before the thing's even done. And, mm-hmm. and Con says something, he's like, yeah, because the second the last tape is turned in, everyone, including me, is unemployed. <laughs> he's right. Like, if I'm not, if I don't have the next thing ready to hire my team by the time this thing's done, I don't make money. Like, I need mm-hmm. to eat. So, and so do, like, all my friends. <laughs> so, in, the, in that case, we can see the sort of, uh, the, the tension between Tsukiko and her like three levels of management above her as not not just indicative of Cohen feeling pressure from the outside world to begin you know coming up with another masterpiece or whatever but sort of a self-induced pressure to you know stay alive (laughs) sure sure i mean if there's one thing you get out of this episode it's that like a lot of this pain is kind of Mm self-induced which I, i think maybe is a good good way for us to segue away from the lovely remarkable funny spectacle and, sure. and, and maybe into like what the characters are doing. Certainly, because the while as good as the set dressing of the, the big kaiju sequence is, that's not what he's it's it's a nice like. Yeah, set dressing, it's 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 a, it is the setting through which he can have these conversations and these character driven moments that, again, really just sort of highlight the three central spokes of the thing that we've been talking about. Sure. We didn't really talk about the paper world. We haven't, yeah. The last time, and I know that we're talking about the characters, but the paper world is is this the other motif, right? The other story is like the, mm-hmm. to extent the kaiju stuff exists to offset the other quiet horror that that is this parallel universe that Tsukiko and and Ikari are, are of their own volition, sort of like trapped in, right? Yes, yeah. In some ways, we can see this as like the the final layer of the kind of like shadow self versus surface self kind of dichotomy where we've got the the world of these 2d flat images that is hiding from view the destruction caused by this sort of like roiling kaiju battle in the city Mm -hmm. i i agree completely i i think that the rendering of the the 2d people having this sort of there's something very disturbing about them i i think and what is disturbing Mm -hmm. about them is as you said they're they're in on it yeah, yeah. In my notes, um, I pointed out the the moment where the fisher, the fish salesman, turns to Tsukiko and sort of says, "Like Shonen Bat will never come here." In a way that I feel like the filmmaking is really implying that he's not saying it in a way that Ikari can hear or understand. Like it's a private thing between the two of them. And Tsukiko looks around and sees all of the other you know people in in the city, and they're all looking directly at her, kind of all to acknowledge that they're all playing a role in some way instead of 
being like autonomous individuals. Like they're supposed to look like they're all like on a set in some way. Like they're just pieces being moved around in a story rather than, uh, you know, authentic characters in their own way. Mm-hmm. What I like about that is it sort of, it sort of offsets this, um, it, it offsets Sukiko's willingness to, to dive into a very flat relationship with Akari. Like, like, she's Mm -hmm. she's in on it too in that like part of this fantasy she's escaped into is ikari's fantasy where he has a daughter right right and she just starts playing his daughter with like little to no provocation yeah because i i think you know we only get the introduction to her father in the last episode uh or in the previous episode just to be specific and what little of him we get sort of suggests that he's around like the same age and milieu uh, as Ikari himself. Right. Or it's very easy for her to read into Ikari a sort of surrogate fatherhood because of their similarities, you mm-hmm. know, like the sort of stern disciplinarian conservative father. And Ikari gets to play out just the in the abstract the idea of having a daughter like he he never clearly defined what kind of daughter he would want but seeing it this way sort of shows us why his conflict with the younger generation is so pointed because he could be their father you know right and it could be his own kid that he's not able to relate to do do you ever get the sense in some ways that he feels as though like I feel bad for Messiah saying this, but like, do, do you think I, I almost get the sense watching it that, that he's a character who feels that, um, that he, that his wife couldn't biologically conceive a child was sort of like youth rejecting him. Like, I think he feels kind of like slighted. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's tough. I don't, I do think that like, I don't know if it if it the, those elements combine to exactly fit in that way, but all of the things that you're describing, perhaps a unacknowledged, if not resentment, then you know hidden pain about his his inability to essentially have kids with the family that he has. Yeah, uh, that he he definitely holds to some degree against uh, Misai. There's the fact that that does prevent him from having any direct understanding of the younger generation. And then there's the fact that, you know, society just does change and he happens to be a kind of person who just is stuck in the past, you know, and the kind of world that created his particular moral view just doesn't, doesn't exist if it ever really existed anymore. Yeah. And that's his big, his big turning point Mm -hmm. in the, in the episode. Right. But before he, he gets to his big turning point, we sort of, finally get his origin story. It's interesting that like they wait till like the final conflict to get the origin of his and Messiah's um, like, like the romance, right? Cause the, yeah, cause yeah. the implication is that like he would go to bars as a young man and she was the, right. the barmaid, right? Yeah. And so that's why we have the two most nostalgic sequences, the one with Hirakawa and then the one with, uh, Inukai that leads him into the 2D world happening at a at a bar, you know, and multiple so, ones with Maniwa. It's like suddenly I understand mm-hmm. why this guy's a barfly. It's not that he's an alcoholic, right? He's 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 still living or wishes he could go back to like that moment when he and Masai first met, like all the time. Maybe that yes. was when he was happiest, mm-hmm. right? 
it, it, it makes him more pathetic, like kind of like a wounded character, but it does like humanize him to me in a big way. Whereas like earlier in the series, I always found Ikari like a little. Mani was the, the much more like personable of the two. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, again, the same way that I, I think it was hard for the two of us to not overemphasize empathize with like Masato, Kaji and Ritsuko when we were watching Evangelion because they're they were in our age cohort right I, I think the same is true in this case with Maniwa is that like we're both in this generational divide closer to Maniwa than either Tsukiko or uh, Ikari yeah and so the fact that the show ultimately proved to be more about Ikari and Tsukiko than than Maniwa Maniwa becomes a bit more of a a structural part of the story at the very end of it rather than a character unto himself that was a surprise to me uh, and I think like understanding that has led me to appreciate the series a bit more kind of coming to terms with the fact that it's, it's not the character that I initially related to that was kind of the focal point of the story's resolution. Yeah, I, I, I agree, but actually the, the character in this episode that I wind uh, that I wound up personally empathizing with the most is, is Tsukiko. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Why is that? Okay. Here's, here's why. Okay. So like, You've you've probably already heard us recap the story, but in case you missed it or in case you're like watching the show and you're not quite sure what's going on, it, it, this is kind of sweaty when they reveal it. But sort of like Tsukiko's big turn is when Maniwa delivers like the information to her that um, we didn't cover this in the last, last episode. So let's set this up because this is kind of convoluted. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and And they set it up really quick and they resolve it really quick. And I actually think it's a little sweaty. but. The idea is that, like, Tsukiko had a dog when she was a young girl named mm-hmm. Maromi. She was taking the dog on a walk. There's an accident. The dog slips the leash, gets run over by a car, right? And rather than come clean to her dad, she makes up a story that she was attacked by a dude on roller skates in a bat, right? right. And that's the origin of, that's, that's the, the core origin of Shonen Bat, right? Right, as well as the fictional Maromi, correct in, in that moment, because the fictional Maromi is is created to replace the real one that died. And the, yeah, and Shonen Bat is created to explain the death of the real Maromi. Correct. They're they're both flip sides of the same fantasy. They they mm-hmm. they set her up as a victim, not someone who made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Right. And the idea here is that her acting in bad faith, her lying is is a is a worse mistake than losing a, a leash. Right. Right. And we'll, I th- we'll get into the actual circumstances when, when we talk about the flashback moment, but that's, this is how it is told to Mani one understood by Mani one when he delivers this speech. Sure. The, the reason I, I wound up relating a lot to Tsukiko is, and this is so weird Ian, but this is a true story. This is what happened. So the other thing that happened to me this weekend, yesterday, is baby Shogi escaped. Yes. Okay. This is the long day that you alluded to. This is, I had a long day yesterday. Here's what happened is I, I went for a walk and I came back and I found uh, my kitten outside of the house. Um, so what, what turns out what happened was the, the, a window that I'd left open, it has screen pane in it. The screen pane had fallen out. I think oh, I think no. he jumped onto the screen and it came out. 
is what happened. So I panic and I try to get him in the house. He doesn't look like he's going to follow me. And what I do is I run in to grab some treats. I'm like, okay, I'm going to treat him in. I'm going to lead a little path and, and lead him in. As long as I can see him, he's okay. Right. I open up the, the door to go back outside with the treats. He was right there. I couldn't see him. I accidentally bonked him in the nose. Oh no. He's already terrified. He bolts into the oh, bushes no. toward the, toward the street. I about I went through like all five stages of of grief yesterday, but I did have that moment where like I'm sitting there not only like having the horrible negative fantasy of what if I never see my kitten again, but of how am I going to explain this to my girlfriend? Right. And like when both of those thoughts were in my head at the same time. It was like that was a that was a dark second of my life, and it, I started moving a bit uh, laterally. Yeah, you're yeah. saying I was I was whoop 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 whoop. But I, I thought about inappropriate, right? But I thought about this. I thought about like, oh man, I'm glad I'm emotionally mature enough to like come clean to my partner about like the kitten has escaped. I'm going to try to catch it. I can't promise mm. you I'm going to catch it. I'm sorry. I know you're upset promise you I'm more upset, right? But I need you to know that this is happening, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm not going to try and catch him and hope you don't find out, which I think was the better thing to do, even though it kind of fucked up both of our afternoons, right? But I, I thought about the Tsukiko Moromi dilemma. Do you come clean to the other person who cares about the animal, right? How do you explain this thing that's happened that is like a result of actions you took, but probably not really like your, your quote unquote, your fault. Right. Right. And also in this particular case where it is a, uh, a father daughter relationship where we know, even though we don't see any evidence of this necessarily in the show uh, that, you know, her father is the rule maker, the one that is a disciplinarian and would be the source of, of direct punishment for this mistake. For so losing there's, there's track extra, of the yeah, extra incentive for Tsukiko to create something that will get her out of both the personal feeling as but as well as the the familial strain that it would cause. Yeah. Anyway, as I was as I was rooting through the bushes desperately calling for my kitten, I did think, "Man, I understand what would lead a 12-year-old girl to lie about this right. and um inadvertently create a psychic monster." <laughs> Well, I, I, now that now that you've set it up, I've got to know how did you? Did, everything is okay. You found? Oh, we got it. You've, I, you, we got my little buddy. He's all right. He's all right. We managed to. I um, I called a friend over. My friend who cat sits for him because I thought, okay, he knows her voice means things are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And we just kept looking for him, and we found him under some patio furniture, and managed to sort of like corral him into a corner. And I let him sniff my hand and like, it it was actually really heartbreaking. And like the second he sniffs my hand and realizes like, I'm not going to punish him. Right. He just started making the most pathetic noises I've ever heard an animal make just these like loud, like wailing distress calls. Like, right. Now I realize I'm in trouble, like not, not in trouble with you, but I've been scared and yeah out here and alone it's him expressing like i'm scared this is bad i don't want it i don't want it i don't want it and i like fortunately him like doing that took enough energy that i could grab him 
Mm-hmm. And just like football tucked him into my chest and <laughs> ran in the house and like tossed him down the stairs. And he immediately goes like hide in a corner. And right. I'm like, that's fine. I don't want to see you for a second either. You piece of <laughs> shit. You scared the crap out of me. Everything is everything is fine. But um Good. you know, the the quiet drama of of maybe losing the household pet really can feel apocalyptic in the moment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So respect, Sukiko. Respect. I did not expect to get like a you living the show out in real life moment to happen. So I need to sort of like recalibrate what exactly I want to bring up next. You know what? Neither did I. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the dramatic irony of that was not lost on me. <laughs> I pondered this as I went to sleep last night. Is like, huh? Is there a parallel universe where I made a different choice and like ruined my relationship? with with my partner and like never saw my kitten again and like all all these terrible things happened and would i feel like a victim i i i don't know it, it's this this idea that like um small mistakes you make in childhood blow up into big mistakes in adulthood mm-hmm. is is philosophically troublesome but also i think is like a good read of of trauma right and yeah and yeah this is the most humanizing thing that happens to tsukiko in in the series it's not that she's like attacked by a weird child monster like i think it's more relatable to be like i lost my pet and then lied about it mm-hmm. and it's like haunted me ever since maybe we should we should stop beating around the bush and talk about the exact circumstances of what actually went down because yeah in the scene of what you described maniwa you know has his sherlock holmes moment where he delivers the the final resolution to the mystery and in that moment you know it's interesting like while he's giving his his sermon from atop the you know the walkway all of the the tendrils of the you know the shonen sludge yeah start like oozing you can tell back towards him so it's this great like moment where it's both cathartic because you get him to like finally lay it all on the table mm-hmm. but you know something else is still coming right Sukiko responds by saying no 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 i was attacked she goes back to the lie one more time right and that's where you have like the bit the big fight scene that breaks out between the you know giant maromi and and the sludge right but then after that sequence is kind of passed by we get the the real version of events which is that and this is you know it's not stated plainly so this is my interpretation and sure feel free to tell me if you feel like it's something else and i'm I'm reading it the wrong way but my interpretation of that scene is that young tsukiko has her period has a period cramps and bends over and that's when she loses the leash Okay, that's that's your because I do multiple times I've watched it and like, why does she just bend over? Right. That puts like a strange spin on everything. Does it? I don't think you're wrong. I just don't know how that like really ties in yeah. to everything. Like, out like that. That seems like something that would happen in Evangelion. Yeah, it it certainly does. And to, as a, a piece of evidence towards my interpretation here, uh, I want to go to the the ancient master's, you know, prediction from the end of the previous episode. Sure, 
Sure. So in, in full, it is the karma of the people swallowed up by the jet black shadow that finally reveals itself. The cry is coming from the source, a purgatory filled with bright red blood. Are they for the eternal goodbye or the first cries of the newly born shoes of gold? The mm. final episode of a dream, an illusion, a bubble and a shadow. Mm, mm, mm. So and so and so it's the all grammar part gets of a this. bit weird in one moment, and I just want to clarify the the question of are they for the eternal goodbye or the first cries of the newly born? That's referring to the cries coming from the source, right? And the source being a purgatory of bright red blood. Got it. And so it's this idea that um, the source, meaning the incident that incites the entire show, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is and a so, purgatory of of bright red blood which could either be Maromi's blood in this case after being hit or i think sukiko's period and it's sort of implying both like a birth and a death and and so she it like yes. in that way the false Maromi and and shonen bat are like in a sense her children right yes mm-hmm. it, mm. and there's weird that's there's some weird feelings that this idea like instills in me in part because like you get a lot of her and misai in the same episode right Right. and and misai is someone who like can't have kids and that's like Mm -hmm. what drives a wedge between her and her husband right which is also something that is not her fault whereas like i'm gonna go ahead and say like yes that's very very spot on yeah right and and like maromi the dog getting hit by the car i don't think is tsukiko's fault no, that's that's sort of what I mean. Like, I think the fact that it is it is biologically not her fault. You know, she right. did not intend to be, you know, hunched over in pain and lose control of the of the leash. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's a way of looking at it as actually sort of a refutation of the simple idea that this is a show about personal responsibility. You know? Yeah. I mean, I. Because we can all acknowledge that it is plainly not Tsukiko's fault that this happens. It is a bad thing that just sort of cosmically randomly happens to her on some level. And so the person who can't accept that it isn't her fault is her because she feels the need to lie about it. Right. Right. And the other big we've sort of papered over a detail. Right. But the other big the the new piece of information that Maniwa has that she didn't before because like saying it's all a lie. Your dog, you let, you let your dog die. And then Mm -hmm. he made this all up. That isn't new information for her. She's repressed it, but it's not new, right? The new information that he has for is your dad knew you were lying. He went along with it anyway. Yes. Yeah. That's crucial. That's crucial here. And it's her inability to like under to like say that to her to like know that about her father. He he helped create like this this the illusion that she's a victim because he felt sorry for her, right? right? And her inability to see that it's an illusion on his part is is what it is sort of like that's like the platform that every that the whole the rest of the house of cards is is built on, right? Yep. Like she yep. only gets to like dissipate Shonen Bat. When she understands, she's like, it was all a lie and dad knew it. We were both lying to one another the whole time, which means we both knew the truth the whole time. Yes. 
Yes. Like that's that's the the missing link, right? So there was actually no fear of of punishment anymore. You right. know. And that's so what instead truly resolves the conflict is, you know, we have this kind of Twin Peaks the Return moment or and also Evangelion moment where adult Tsukiko arrives in her own past and sees the events occur and then is able to grieve Moromi truly for the first time. To right. allow herself to feel the, the the guilt and grief in combination instead of transmuting those feelings into the personification that is shown in bat. The literal shadow that emerges from her body of right. shown in bat. You and know? you do get to see like the shown in bat shadow in that flashback. Like you get to see her like unsummon him. Mm-hmm. Doesn't she say is the line, I don't need you anymore. Maybe I'm wrong. No, she just she just has the the breakdown and the I'm sorry, I'm sorry moment with Moromi and then Shonen Bat just says goodbye, sayonara, and mm. f- fades away. You're right. You're right. Because it's ultimately not about confronting Shonen Bat. It's about confronting the feeling that you created Shonen Bat to avoid confronting. <laughs> so it's all about this is a show about the fear of confrontation. Yeah. To an extent. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's true. <laughs> And 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 Ikari's afraid to confront his wife about his feelings about her her being barren. I mean, which I feel weird saying saying her being barren. That sounds insensitive. Is there a yeah. more sensitive way to say that? I don't uh, know. Well, I think the the good news is that there's more going. I think that it is just his fear of confronting the degree of pain that his wife is in and. Like it's almost a self-perpetuating thing where he's out of the house so much that he can't possibly go back, mm-hmm. you know? And I think he does feel like a certain degree of powerlessness and shame about the, his, his marriage. You know, we get this absolutely incredible. The one of Misai's only has like two sequences, really three, three scenes in this episode, but the sort of knockout punch one uh, is when Ikari and Sukiko are at the bar and what a great have, fucking sequence. Yeah. The waitress first is a two-dimensional figure right. that goes back and forth. Not a character, not named, not identifiable. Then he turns and suddenly she's young Misai in the most like romantic, nostalgic right. moment possible. Then she starts coughing blood. Ugh. So it's the intrusion of real life through the fantasy, like inch by inch becoming the real thing mm-hmm. from an abstraction to a, a, a real fact of life. When he goes up to her and suddenly she, it's the current present day. Misai old Misai. I think that's yeah. quote finger quotes old. Right. That is just a knockout fucking punch from Satoshi. Kon. And <laughs> to get away from it, fucking Maromi throws <laughs> Like the fucking emperor's new groove letter lever, and the whole bar goes through a trap door. Right, <laughs> it's your subconscious being like, "I will do the corniest supervillain shit to get away from this grief." <laughs> and the the two like neighboring houses slam shut to right. like show that it was never there. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Yeah, you get you have to paper over reality. You have to hide it behind the set. The the fake stage that all of this is taking place on i think maybe part of the reason that i, I just kind of realized this like the, the, i wanted to do these two tv shows for our first two seasons it's because they both end with like extended sequences on a fake stage you know 
there's okay. I did want to get into it because yeah. okay, okay. It to me the finale of this show. It is in conversation with the finale of Evangelion. I think mm-hmm. I will not accept an argument to the contrary. I because like Evangelion was so big, the ending was so controversial and so important. I, like it, there are I there are series in the history of 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 Japanese animation that like set the tenor for what comes after. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, I, we know from the backgrounds of Satoshi Kon and Hideaki Anno that the one before this was battleship Yamato. Mm -hmm. They all Mm -hmm. loved battleship Yamato when they were a kid. Battleship Yamato made them want to be animators. Right. But the difference is this is not the first, but this is Cone ending a series in a post-Evangelion world. Yes, it is true. It's unavoidable. It's unavoidable, right? And it's, I'm an auteur. He was like, an auteur. that's how they marketed the show, right? Is like the first series from acclaimed anime director Satoshi Khan, mm-hmm. right? And it's going to be a weird, dark psychological thing. Like I, from Go, people had to be like, oh, this is going to be you doing Ava. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but I, it's a that's certainly show. the case from like an American perspective. You know, I, I, I think that's I think that's part of the pitch. I think that's how they marketed it. I think he must have been aware on some level because it's going to end on a kaiju fight. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't escape it. And when you look at the the two parallel plots of like Mani was stuck in the real world, and I- Ikari and and Tsukiko in the two D fantasy world. To me, this is like an interpretation of the canon, quote unquote, ending to the original Evangelion, where it's like, oh, episodes 25 and 26 are in Shinji's mind and Mm -hmm. end of Evangelion is in like the real world. Like, I I, I think to an extent, this is an idea, an attempt to try and do both at once, have your cake and eat it too. Oh, and we're going to do it in 20 minutes. Right. Or it's the sort of like post Zeroel fight sequence where Shinji has, you know, gone into the goo yeah. at the same time as the Zeroel fight. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. It, it, to me, it's inescapable. And you do get this sort of like, even though you get it from Ikari, Ikari does have this sort of like supposed to be glorious moment that I don't know if it works for me, but he picks up the bat and he's like, the reality is that I have no place where I'm supposed to be and starts like bashing his way out of 2d world back into the real world. Right. Right. To me, that's gotta be like a parallel to, to Shinji's like, I can, I can choose to be a better person and everyone goes, congratulations. Right. Yeah. It is it is the sad old man post middle age crisis version of it. I, I think maybe we should track Ikari's uh, character arc a bit over the course of this episode. It's specifically over the course of the two D world sequence because that's where we get his you know cathartic moment. Much earlier on, there's a moment where he buys some cigarettes mm-hmm. and they're short hope cigarettes as he usually smokes. And Tsukiko asks him, I thought they were supposed to be mild sevens. I thought you got mild sevens. That's already a sign that she is seeing him as her father, you know, because. We, in the oh, previous that's episode, why she says that. Okay. Cause I missed what kind of cigarettes he smoked when I rewatched. Okay. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, I noticed that I'd made that connection this time. So if it, if you missed it on your first time watching the show, I, I totally, 
totally makes a lot of sense. And well, then this Ikari, is my third time watching the show, so I've missed it three times. But okay, <laughs> that that disclaimer was meant for the the general listening audience, not so much you. Oh, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> keep going, keep going. Then. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Then Ikari says it doesn't matter what brand it is. Which to me is a sign that he's slowly losing his identity. He's losing himself in the fantasy world. And he said, it's slowly, it doesn't matter what brand it is. Nothing really matters. Nothing matters, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And you can, he's receding into being a 2d character himself on some level. Right. And is everything is just the role that he's playing. And he only finds purpose in the 2d world when he gets to act like a cop. Right, chase down the robber, and it's a comic-looking robber. Yeah. Well, in this episode, it's when he throws the rock at the TV that Maniwa is projecting into the 2D world through, which, first of all, brilliant touch. Having those two animation styles contrast each other, it's such a way to, like, create special effects without special effects. Right. And the way the 2D people all like cheer him for like, yay, thank you for like destroying the poisonous real broadcast, the poisonous broadcast, which I think is, you know, we, we mentioned in the megahertz episode that like this show can, it's not prop, it's not propaganda, but it can feel a bit gross sometimes to root for Maniwa and Ikari. And I think this is the most telling like anti cop, stance that the show takes which is ikari feels like a cop when he's able to block out reality you know and ignore a problem and paper it over with you know rejection and essentially police violence and it's 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 the same force of repression that we've seen this show criticize throughout the entire run yeah there's i think there's a really fair anti-fascist read of that sequence yeah or just anti-authoritarian right uh, broadly speaking yeah, this idea of like, oh, we don't want the information. The information is poisonous. Meanwhile, earlier in the show, in this episode, you saw TV screens explode into black goop. <laughs> right, right. It's really quite well done. I, yeah, it, it is. It so is. Both things can be true, right? There are poisonous broadcasts that are melting people's brains, but to ignore all broadcasts and all warning signs is delusional. You know, right. It's that's its own escape from reality and, and like to in order to to escape into reality from delusion, he needs to sort of accept that he has no place in the real world, even though he has to live there. Right. Which is the sort of rule of three payoff that we got from the Holy Warrior, where he says that while in the JRPG fantasy world. Uh, and we hear that from Misai when uh, she's confronting shown in bat in no entry. And now he finally gets to deliver it himself to himself as a way of breaking out of the, the fake 2d world. It is of course only after Misai passes away that he he goes full nihilist basically and or backward goes back out of nihilism. Like he no longer has anything to run away from because the worst has happened. So fuck this fake world bullshit. I might as well just live in a world that I literally have nothing left to live for in. Yeah. I don't, I don't love that. Messiah has to die. Like, again, I think this undercuts this sort of like we, we talked earlier in the last episode about like, is Messiah like a quote unquote strong female character, quote unquote, what does that mean? And Mm -hmm. I think we, we both landed on this idea that while 
while we like Misai in the show and that she's a very strong force that it it like that sh- everything she does is so bound up in 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 Ikari is like bad to a, to an extent right yeah this yeah, is exactly. more this is more of that like i don't like that she sort of to an extent lives just to die so that he can live mm-hmm. um it, it that feels a little cheap for for something that's so successfully done so many other sophisticated things in the same episode i think that's a little a, a little wimpy yeah well it's it's easy mode it's nolan shit you know to just it's be like so nolan sh- oh my god it's so easy mode. You are yeah. right. And I think it's, it is a shame given how good Misai's character and her episode are, you know, how, how fully developed they are in their own way that it does kind of nub down to a, you know, a catalyst for a man's actions, you know? Right. After which point he is a character basically ends. Cause like the, the second mm-hmm. he's back in the real world, like Maniwa's character arc is like over. Basically. Both of their character arcs are, are they're, over. They're done. All that's left after that is like, okay, time for Soggy to face the music. Mm-hmm. And then the cycle can repeat. Maybe. <laughs> but you know. th- yeah, this is, this is, I think sort of ultimate. I was thinking about like, how, how is the situation resolved? You know, Maniwa, all he can do is solve the mystery. All he can do is put all the pieces together as like the fan surrogate and understand the logic of the world that he now lives in. Ikari cannot solve the Shonen Bat issue because he needs to get over his own nostalgia and his own escapism in order to even live in the real world. And it's only then that Tsukiko can actually go and face the music, as you said, and like look directly at what the, the true source of the problem was and allow herself to feel the feelings that she had been denying herself the entire time because she can't retreat into Ikari's fantasy anymore either. Mm -hmm. You know, like this idealized surrogate father figure is now shattered. Right. And she only, she can only face her real father at this point, but we never see her face. Real father. Do we? I don't recall. Not the end. Okay. Yeah. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Uh, You're right. Like it's not the, the question of facing her father is out of the picture. It's can she face herself? Right. In the end, it's like, is, can you live with what you did? Yes. Can you can on you its accept- own terms? That's that's where this all starts. That's the source. And if you can get past that, then now that you know that your father did try and support you, even in, in a lie, did care for you and did want to do something to make you feel better, that that is now a, a bond that is strong enough to allow her to get over the initial negative feelings, first and foremost. Sure. I agree. Yeah. And, and that is a very can you live with your own choices? Right. Mm -hmm. That is, that is a Nietzschean question. That's the eternal return. That's so we've, even though like, I think other parts of this show do poke holes at the easy existentialist reading of, of like the text. I do think in the end that this comes down to one person's subjective interpretation of like, what is the right thing to do? Does like slot this, series again like evangelion into the sort of like existentialist text yeah like like zone right like this Mm -hmm. is a this is a question about like what is it what does it mean to be a being in the modern world right how how do we understand ourselves can we understand ourselves yeah right are we responsible for what we create 
are we and I think a lot some of these questions are maybes and no's and who knows it and rather than yeses from from Cohn. Yeah, to be clear, they never like so tellingly there is, I think, sort of like a big even though I, I, I take other issues with the ending, I actually don't take this issue with the ending. But this is something I just want to point out. At no point in time do any of the police ever like talk to talk to Tsukiko about like, you know, your creation has killed people. Like now kind of like a lot of people like do you realize that like in some ways you're kind of like a mass murderer right right yeah conveniently we don't really like at no point in time is going to have this conversation about like i fuck your dad like your your imaginary friend is murdering human beings yeah i i think it is useful in in that it it helps that both of these characters have gone so far out of their original professions and are now down their own rabbit holes that like, they're not really cops anymore, you know? Right. Like, sure. Just and, as, just as we're so out of our own professions that here I am being like an arm armchair psychoanalyst. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Good point. This is what uh, the people pay for. <laughs> well, we do actually see some of the other characters uh, from mm-hmm. the show. We get a few, a, a quick, rundown of like we get like one more montage of, a, of, a, of characters from the older episodes and most of them are a, a bit too short to really make anything of we get one with ichi like clutching the palm tree before he's swept up in in shonen bat mm-hmm. the only one that we get like a very conspicuous look at is another messy makeup maria shot right stumbling towards the camera right what do you think of that? What what do we make of that sort of conspicuous Maria moment? It's, it's, you know, it's hard because she's like one of those. She's like a standout character. Right. That we, she's one of the storylines that like her, her and her and Yuichi are, are characters, not not Yuichi. Yeah. Yuichi, not Yuichi. Right. Yeah. Her and Yuichi are, I think, like the, the victims that like you most like want to know what kind of becomes of them. And in the end, you don't really get a. a a good understanding but i think maybe the reality is she's a fucking mess right and yeah maybe that's like as far as like cone can think about it. it's like well it turns out baby girl you're just a messy messy bitch who loves drama <laughs> and that's okay have some slime fair okay uh is that I'm not sure. a good enough is that not a good enough reading I think, you know, I'm almost down to just go with the most practical answer, which is just like, oh, this is a cool character design. I really liked having this like really like messy makeup look. Let's just get one more for the road. You know? Hit it again. Hit the beat yeah. again. Why not? It's so it's the end of the song. Let's have all the loops firing at once. Right. <laughs> right. It's the big chorus. Speaking of loops, and I do also think this is like more evidence towards the uh, the period thing. And therefore, the, the like the connection to Misai and all that, which I think is is so crucial to the way that these final episodes web together. The show is cyclical, so there is this kind of cyclical nature to everything. Sure. And Tsukiko is linked to the moon in the previous episode, right? So yeah, just just two more bits of like things that are clearly on Cone's mind, whether all of them tying together was intentional or just like creative happenstance. Just, I thought I'd point it out, you know? No. Okay. No, you're, you're right. I feel bad about not having like the period reading. You know, you're right. I missed it. 
uh, I'm just sort of working through a bunch of other notes that I have, but talking about like the, the post Ava ending kind of thing, we also get Tsukiko rising up out of the water after mm-hmm. she's had her emotional breakthrough, which is very end of Evangelion. Certainly. It's so Ray. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that's very Ray. And I also think we had, I mean, not to bring up ooze again, but like people <laughs> getting swallowed by ooze. Yes. That is an, that is yes. an Evangelion thing. Does Evangelion own people getting it's them and Nickelodeon together. <laughs> Two very ver- different versions of getting slimed, but yeah. <laughs> and yet there is some strange similarity. Isn't life just one rigged game <laughs> show for kids? <laughs> Uh, another example I was going to bring up of that of that metaphor showing up was is not in an anime, but it was in Gravity, uh, the the big space epic. Um, yeah, the one and, shot and Sandra with, Bullock space movie, a good movie. Right. Not it's not one shot all the way through, but it's like the many you know it's Quaron, so there's a ton of very wild oneers, but yeah. ends with her emerging out of a body of water, right? And after you know confronting her own psychological issues in a very Evangelion kind of way well it's supposed to symbolize rebirth right Right. like this is all very like basic level Jungian archetype right like oh Mm -hmm. coming out of the water like like Aphrodite out of her shell here is purity here is beauty here is a Mm -hmm. new here is a fresh start right yes And, and the other side of the cycle that you see is like in a sour note on the ending you know there's Maniwa with white hair in his one must assume mid thirties. I can't right. relate at all. Um, <laughs> white with his with his white hair, just like drawing the equation in chalk on the parking lot. Uh, again, right? right? Yeah. He's become the he's become the ascended master in all ways, and and like lost all parts of himself. Which is that's also sort of like a tragic ending loss. Yeah, yeah. I and actually think yeah, I think that's true of almost all the characters. Like. In the same way that in the last episode we talked about how the whole show had repeated so that Tsukiko kind of ended up where she started by creating Shonen Bat. Right. Um, and, you know, was in the same position that she was in episode one. In this episode, we get a loop background to episode one again with only basically only Tsukiko has moved forward in some way. Like she's shown with a new haircut, new mm-hmm. outfit, which I think is supposed to represent like new career of some kind. Um, right. And there's like a di- and there's like a different cute animal mascot on the big tv <laughs> yep uh meow i think is meow yeah, yeah. <laughs> bad <Fucking> branding <laughs> um there's a lot of funny com- you know we get this repeated thing of like well again there's like reconstruction there's construction sequences again tying that thread for one final time through the show and we have Chatter the on montage the yeah, chatter on the phones of people saying like, oh, don't bring a dog to the apartment. People hate dogs now. Right. <laughs> or like, ugh, an anime. Why can't we watch a movie like normal people? <laughs> Con can't, can't help making fun of himself. Um, a, a man who said he never wanted to do a live action movie. <laughs> right. And then this is another thing is like Ikari still a security guard at a construction site. And... I know we're supposed to believe that like he's reached some sort of self understanding, but that does not strike me as a man who's living any kind of a happy life. Okay. But he said itself earlier in the episode, right? Like you don't, the world still doesn't have a place for you, but you just need to live in it. Mm -hmm. Right. 
He fucked up a high-profile serial assault case. He was a bad detective. He got fired. The system worked. Right. And then his like, wife died. That is <laughs> sad. Yeah. That is sad. I feel bad that his wife died and his partner went crazy. However, him winding up as a middle-aged security guard seems like maybe the appropriate ending for what literally happened. Right. Yeah. It is not a happy ending, but it is the correct ending for the character. This is where you, it's like, sorry, like you were a fun character and like a cool show. This is where you belong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like a great place. Yeah. But to your point, nor is it a great place for Maniwa because he's gone gray in two years. Right. <laughs> like, And uh, is drawing equations on the sidewalk. He's, he's, you know, gone cuckoo bananas. Um, He's been cuckoo bananas. This is the, that is his final form of mm-hmm. conspiracy theorist. Like it, and it is weird earlier in the episode to hear him talking about, I am the sword that knows the truth in like, in like a, now that we live in a society where like the truth doesn't seem to mean anything to a lot right. of people anymore. Like who decides what's, what's true or not. And like, maybe that's part of the joke. Cause he's so like completely overpowered by the fantasy that is Kaiju shown in bat. Now ooze mm-hmm. form Kaiju shown in bat, right? Like it's like, it's like what's knowing the truth compared to a universe of fucking lies. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. 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 That's, it's a very telling action beat that is like played for laughs, but I think, you know, explains the gray hair. Uh, and then incredibly, the show doesn't actually end there. The show is one last teaser. Right. Um, which is a teaser for nothing. The show is over, but it kind of proves that those were always part of the show. Those were always part of the episodes was the mystery hanging on to the end of them. The question mark, uh, you know, the, the Maromi sleeping bodies question mark. This is, this is the question. Uh, and so the, we get Monty was teaser. Monty was prophecy, sure. which is, the story that seems to have ended went round and round back to its beginning. And then following each stepping stone and connecting the dots, you will find an eternally recurring phantasmal castle. No mystery remains unsolved forever and no answer is with ever out a mystery. Okay. I take issue with that and I take issue with this end. So here's my, mm, I've come around a lot. We started, we started talking about paranoia agent. I was skeptical. I was Ikari. You were Maniwa. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and here I am a lowly security guard. <laughs> I am, I am protecting the small reconstruction of anime discourse on podcasts. That's what I do. It pays terribly. Right. So he, here I am, but let me, let me just say this. Okay. And I got an anecdote. Follow. Sure. So when I went to college, weirdly enough, I studied poetry. And my teacher, my thesis advisor, my professor, is a, a woman named uh, Diane Seuss. Di Seuss. She's actually now been shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize in poetry multiple times. So that's not a humble brag. That's good for her. Good for you, Di. She was always a great teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I, I still think a lot of like the insights that she gave me when I was like studying under her. One of the things that I learned in her class was that I had a propensity to try and like make nice, tight pat ends to my poems. Mm -hmm. And she always hated that. And so like, like I always remember her do, she would like underline the end, be like, never tie it up in a bow. Mm -hmm. It's better not to. And like, 
as shaggy as the end of Evangelion, not just the movie, but like the series is. That's its strength. Like that's its mystery, right? Like part of the thing that makes it so, I'm going to say poetic is that it doesn't, it doesn't start again right at the beginning. It's not an eternally recurring pattern that you can just verbalize at the end to say like, this is the end. It's also the beginning. It's a, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a perfect loop and the two sides questions and answers fit together. Like Evangelion's end doesn't fit together that's what frustrates people but that's what makes it lovable that's what makes you want to like go like dive into it over and over and over again right and i think frankly i think this is a lesson that khan could have learned maybe Mm -hmm. like i wish i could like have dai seuss go back in time and send that email to soshi khan be like it doesn't you don't need to tie paranoia agent up in a bow you don't need to tie millennium actress or perfect blue up in a bow In some ways, they might be more interesting if it was a a little messier, I think. Yeah, I think the interesting thing here is how this ending presents itself as a tidy ending, almost like self-consciously, when I don't think it actually is, you know? Okay, push back. Yeah, I want to hear this. Because it's trying to have it both ways, which is, you know obviously a big thing there's duplicitous and doublings doublings all across the whole show so of course the show is going to try and have it both ways sure where you know no mystery remains unsolved forever i mean that's how maniwa got where he is is believing that right the idea that there is a, a true answer at the bottom of this is will drive you nuts there isn't there's only there's interpretations but there's not one unifying theory you know there's no tarot card layout or zodiac layout or whatever that you can apply to this whole thing that makes the show in its entirety all fit together and saying then admitting no answer is ever without mystery is sort of saying like yeah spend a lot of time trying to figure this all out but don't expect to actually get anything out of it which i feel like is kind of a feint it's kind of like a bit too cute it's it is it is is, too cute and i also feel like ending it in this way is almost it's too heavy handed. It feels like him saying like, like, and subscribe or something at the end, you know, like, (laughs) yes, it does. It does have that feeling. And like it, I don't want to get, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. Um, because I'm thinking specifically of the end of another show that we've thought about covering in the future that maybe we'll talk about later in this episode for a second. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but like, this is a common problem that I, I see as an end to a lot of anime that I love. Yeah. Even even like other TV shows. I, love. I mean, that's sort of the difference, right? It's like in, in, in America, often like a television series is canceled, right? And so they just quickly <laughs> need to write toward an ending. And so you get the shaggy ending anyway. Yeah. Right. But this is why people didn't like Breaking Bad, right? They too got, neat. It felt too, too neat. neat. Yeah. Too, too neat. It almost would have been better if it was like The Sopranos where it's just like cut to black. Is he dead? I don't know. You right. figure it out. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Game of Thrones also attempts to be too neat and ends up creating a bigger mess through its failure to clean up. Right. Stop closing the loops. Like someone's something's got to hang over. Mm -hmm. Right. I agree completely. It's why people like Empire Strikes Back the best. And I don't love Star Wars, but people misinterpret the end of the Empire Strikes. They think people like it because the good guys lose and evil wins, quote unquote. But that's too dialectic. People mm-hmm. like it because it leaves something unresolved to think about. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Can yeah, you yeah. imagine like living between Empire 
and and Return of the Jedi being like, what is gonna fucking happen? Like just wondering that had to be more satisfying than mm-hmm. any actual end to Star Wars could be, which is why they keep doing prequels and then sequels and then others to keep trying to find like what is an ending that is going to satisfy like the the promise at the end of Empire Strikes Back. There's nothing that will. Yeah. The most powerful feeling is like the reason we talk about like show ending fatigue or show ending, you know, that sort of disappointing thing that happens at, at the end of a, a series. So we mentioned in our Shonen episode, the kind of frustration people and angst that people feel at the end of a TV show is because there's no, the last moment, the, the you know, I, I've, I annoy people with this take all the time, but like for the Breaking Bad example, it should have ended with Ozymandias yeah. when he splits town. That's it. Show's over, you know? Yeah. Like Lost should have ended literally a season before it did when they hit the atomic bomb and the screen goes white. There you go. End of the show. End of point, show. Point made. It is that moment. You can only fail <laughs> to uh, to live up to people's imaginations the further down the line you go in that way. You it, know, I, I agree. I agree. And it's, it's frustrating to see that like from. It, I, I find it a little bit frustrating to see it from someone who's obviously such a great storyteller like Cone, right? I think, and, yeah, I think it's more of a framing issue. I think literally if this teaser had just let it actually just be the loop and they're, well, yeah, I kind of feel both ways. Cause it's like, I do like the fact that it's integrated the teasers into the core of the show, you know, right. Where you can't have one without the other, but I think that there's something kind of trollish and winky and too cute by half about Maniwa saying, Cool. Try watching it again. Have a good time. Try and crack the code. Even knowing that there's no code to crack, you know, right? like if it could just accept that it's unsolvable and like leave you just with the mystery instead of the urge to solve the mystery. But again, I, maybe that's, it's ultimately his point is like, you have to know through failing that you can't solve the mystery in order to truly solve the show. Well, I know that mystery was the point. Like I, I do know that, right? Because like it, in the commentary, Khan talks a, a, a great deal about them constructing the story and how they went about writing the scripts. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they said something along the lines of like, they wrote the scripts by figuring out how much information to remove. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like they, they, like the initial drafts explained more and on rewrite, they would take information out. Right. I think I mean, in general, that's a, a, a cool strategy. Yeah, it, it is. It is a cool strategy, I think. And it's not it's not unique to this show, you know, but I, I, I think it's fascinating. This sort of like erasure models, how they wrote the dialogue, like they would write the dialogue longer and then erase lines of dialogue until they thought it was interesting. Mm hmm. And that's mm-hmm. why the characters speak in this eccentric way and, and, and talk past one another. And so, like, I think the withholding. It's like a bondage thing almost. It's like edging, right? Like like the, keeping the satisfaction like out of your reach is where the fun is. Yeah. Of yeah. the show, right? And I think it's a little unfair to just like don't tell me that. Right. I, I should figure I should know that already. <laughs> right. It's the it's the reason why like closer by 9 inch nails is not a sexy piece of music because he's just literally saying I want to fuck you. <laughs> just like, like <laughs> That is an argument. All I'm saying, like, <laughs> it's 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 being a bit too forward 
with its its intentions to hook you into rewatching the show. Right. Yeah. I I agree. And so I would have loved to see him try again. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think this is a great show. I've you've I have successfully like rehabilitated my opinion of Paranoid Agent in doing this with you. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have found my, my feelings about the show changed and clarified a lot by doing this. How, how so? Like, give me, give me yours. Right. Cause like, I, I've been really open about like my narrative of me being like not sold and I'm still like, not, I'm still not like all in, mm-hmm. but I'm at least pot committed now. Right. So like, w- what about you? I think, and it was partially just by reading your notes and the degree to which you narrowed in on the Akari Tsukiko thing. I had never considered why it is that those characters end up in the same fantasy at the end. You know, Mm. I had, I had never connected the dots to the surrogate father thing and the connect connection of that to uh, Akari's lack of ability to have a child, you know? Right. And you, And, and you helped me find that too. Like here, while we've been talking just now. Yeah, I, I and I, I I had never realized that I could connect that because I, I from the very first time I watched it, I was like, what what the fuck is going on with the period being the incited inciting incident, you know? Right. Like that had always weirded me out, and I, I felt like worried about like the implications of that, whether there was some sort of weird gender thing going on. And I'm not saying there's not, but I think that through having this conversation, I I can place that event in a, in a larger schema of what the show is trying to say, you know? Yes. And I, I leave with like a less worried about the show's potential conservative worldview and with a more nuanced understanding of what it's getting at. Yes. And I think in the course of doing the show, I've also like begun to feel a little more charitably about some of Khan's worldview Mm-hmm. Shout out to Eric Thurman Chingy for helping me with that breakthrough a few episodes ago. Yeah. Crucial, you know, crucial stuff from them. I'm a little less concerned about like my worries about like con as like a, a weird kind of up his own ass. Neo lib. <laughs> uh, huh. I still maintain that's true to some extent, but I, like I've made peace with it. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Paranoid agents helped me with, with that. And I, I think at least, mechanically the way that they've constructed it wow what a like if we're talking about something it does better than ava like i love ava but you you gotta admit that by the end they're like the wheels are coming off like we are like we're like making the track as the train is rolling right (laughs) which is part of the charm but he's he's also like a little bit like wow you let it get this far huh right i can't believe you're still going right whereas like with paranoid agent like i know the same thing happened Mm -hmm. like the production also went totally off the rails and they were building the track as it was going and at no point in time do i ever think obviously here's where they lost sight of the goal like (laughs) right if anything it's like they they successfully distributed that tension across many parts of the entire season instead of all running out of steam at the very end, you know? Right. Where we can have a few moments of being like, man, the Holy warrior kind of looks like shit. And like, I'm not really sure what, (laughs) what's going on with like the ethics of happy family planning or, you know, the sort of sudden bagginess of the plot. They are, they're able to make all these things feel 
appropriate in some way to the uh, the totality of the show, even right. though you could see potentially where that would would have been like a moment of disaster for sure. a show like Ava. And you and you wonder if they maybe learned from Otto's mistakes, maybe like, I don't know, but I'm sure like at some point in time, because I know the production went crazy fast. Like mm-hmm. it was, it was very truncated production, right? And a very expensive show because they hired, we've spent all this time talking about the talent, right? All the right. cinema level talent. Like they accepted a truncated production schedule because they said, okay, we're going to hire people who are used to working in movies. They're mm-hmm. just going to have a higher quality output. Fewer mistakes will be made. We'll right, be able right. to trust them. Right. Instead of like Gynax, which was mostly like, you know, like, people who began as hobbyists and then ground their way up. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Instead, they picked people who were like very seasoned delegated things out. And once the beginning was done, basically like took that team and said, now immediately start working on the ending. Right. We're right. going to let the budget lag in the middle. Yes. Yeah. We're, yeah, we're yeah. going to put more money into the end. That's a, a, a much like more seasoned approach. That's like an industry veteran way of doing it instead of what you're describing as the kind of like upstart kids still figuring out how to make a TV show thing that we get with Evan Galeon. Right. And like Anna was not a noob. He'd worked, he'd worked Miyazaki. He'd helmed a TV show before Mm -hmm. a longer one, but that, that didn't stop it them from like running into the, this problem. Right. And so like from that, from that respect, I think they, they probably needed to have at least one or two instructional examples when making paranoia agent to make the decision. Right. Okay. We're going to go from the beginning to working on the end. And that's what Satoshi is doing. Mm-hmm. Everyone else. Here's his storyboards. Make it fucking work. Right. Yeah. It's a smart way to do like a single serving TV show, you know? Right. Like it's why David Lynch coming back for the end of twin peaks almost makes the second season feel good. <laughs> it almost caps like uncapsizes the boat by like sheer force of effort to like get back on track. Yeah. Uh, if he, if he'd not, if he'd not decided to end on a cliff. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe that's the, maybe that's the example to the contrary, right? Yeah. Where it's like, I wish I do wish twin peaks had a tidier end. <laughs> Well, we sort of get both the tidier, untidier ending with the return, but right. which we get to both have closing of the loops and then the busting of the entire circle, <laughs> you know? I've So, okay, confession time. Mm-hmm. I've not watched the return. Ah, okay. I will try but, to be less spoilery. Well, no, it's okay. <laughs> There's already so many spoilers I've, I've, I've seen. Well, here's why. It's because you need to pay for it episode by episode. It's not streaming all in one on a service I have. Yeah, so you don't you don't have Showtime? I don't. No, mm. I've got to make I've got to make decisions, and I've thought about Showtime, but at the same time, when I'm thinking about our project, this podcast, I thought maybe I should just like subscribe to Funimation because <laughs> right. there's a because they've got like a bunch of like good stuff behind that paywall. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, so, yeah hopefully with I, the Patreon, maybe we can start making that a tax deductible thing for you to do. <laughs> maybe we maybe we do. Maybe we share the password, right? <laughs> right. Um, I I did watch. Uh, I did pay episode by episode for a thing, but it was only six episodes long. It was a mini series, but I did see Chanwick Park's Little Drummer Girl. Oh shit! I never never watched that. Excellent. Uh huh. Somehow totally unavailable on DVD in the United States. There's some weird rights issue, but Florence Pugh. I'm here for Florence Pugh signs. Cool. Um, Excellent. I, and I just <laughs> like Michael Shannon, and I, I like Jean uh, Jean Le Carre. It's great. Anyway. <laughs>
Well, that's it for Paranoia Agent, the last episode entitled The Final Episode. A fitting title, considering uh, it's the final episode of TV. So she kind of did. Mm-hmm. Mm, that joke is in bad taste. It's in the- <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think we've said our piece about the show. Uh, I'm not sure if there's any lingering thoughts that you've had about all of it that you want to square away now or I mean there's still one more thing that we have to talk about with with Cohn which is you know the movie that he made after Paranoia Agent Paprika Mm, we're gonna put it on my sandwich yep (laughs) the most delicious most edible uh and edible friendly uh of any of Cohn's works (laughs) it is it is true I'm very excited to revisit Paprika I mean frankly I've been like delaying the gratification because I know I'm gonna fucking love it yeah yeah, right. Yeah. I don't know where it's going to land on my because like my whole cone, like my understanding of his oeuvre is like. Changing, but not changing as we're doing this, it, mm-hmm. like I I guess on rewatch, I, 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 we'll get into this later, but let's let's see where things land. I don't love ranking, but I'm, I'm in my head. I've been toying around with like if I had to rank his stuff. Yeah. Where would where would I put what? And um. Paranoid agent's gone from something that frankly before I was going to put near the bottom to something where I'm like, do I like this more than perfect blue? I don't think mm-hmm. I actually do. Um, but there's things I like about it more than perfect blue. Right. Yeah. Like, does, like, does that make sense? Totally. I think it is the work of a more mature artist and thinker than perfect blue, mm-hmm. but perfect blue just has that like, jolt of electricity that only someone kind of punching above their weight level can give you, you know? Yeah. There's, there's always going to be something special about like that first moment where an artist breaks into becoming who they are, you know? Right. And while I think that paranoia agent is, has a lot more to say, uh, or attempts to say a lot more, either sure. Pick your poison there. I think both can be true. I think it's, I think both things are true, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I think paranoid agent, paranoid agent has more to say than perfect blue does. And I think it does say more things than perfect blue does. Yeah. However, while perfect blue has a lot of technical imperfections, right? It's so tight. It's so it's as long as three episodes of paranoid agent, basically four, four, right? Right. So it's, it's shorter than the series by more than half. Right. And yet in it from a not technical perspective basically every decision works yes basically every choice is like is like the correct he bowls a perfect game Mm -hmm. yeah it's 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 more kind of like startling in that way because it's so compact and it hits you one great choice after another for such a condensed period of time whereas something like this it's impossible to not not to start to see like some weird jangliness to, right. to the structure even even Anno doesn't have that right like we, yeah. like i don't think there is there are individual episodes of evangelion that i think are are basically perfect mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the wedding episode day the, tokyo three stood still the yes. zero l episode yeah maybe the first episode are, are are basically perfectly constructed the series as a whole is not like i can't say that right and the movies i love pieces of them but they're but they're not. They're even more you, baggy and jangly, you know. But I think that's part of the charm. Of course, yeah. Right, right. 
and if you think about like the other like if we're talking about like other great anime auteurs right mm-hmm. which is a relevant question for us nearing the end of our first season to start thinking a second season it's, jesus it's <laughs> it's true i haven't watched akira in a long time but i think akira is sort of like still maybe has like maybe it's sort of like the the muhammad ali people still say the the goat although i'm not right. certain that's true i don't know that akira's perfect i think it's i think it's really good but it's hard for me to say it's perfect just because i've read the manga and Correct. I'm, I'm going to be up my, my own ass about that, where it's sure. just like, I need to, I would need to accept the movie as a separate thing to be, uh, right. to feel that way. It's literally spectacular. Like from, spe- yeah. from a spectacle level, like basically nothing, even live action, like very little touches it. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think. Right. Mm-hmm. So on, on that level, it's hard to fuck with. And I guess, you know, I love Miyazaki. I've watched a lot of Miyazaki's. I don't think most of them are perfect. Maybe way. Maybe. Yeah. It's hard. It's been a while since I've done like a serious Miyazaki watch. So I, I feel like I would have come at it with m- very different eyes than I used to. But in, in my mind's memory, I wouldn't call any of them perfect. I would say that they're maybe they go down easier than most of the stuff that we, we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't think that necessarily is synonymous with being perfect. But what is perfect ultimately is what we're uh, blue, blue. Yeah. It, 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 perfect in that way. I see what you perfect mean. in that way. Right. Yeah. But, but even as I said that perfect blue is not my favorite cone thing. Right. It's not the thing that's brought me the most joy. The thing yeah. millennium actress has brought me still like that movie, I think has brought me more joy than, than all of paranoia agent. Right. Yeah. You would not upon rewatch say that paranoia agent is necessarily better than either of them. no, but now I've I've gone from thinking it's sort of like a fascinating mess to thinking, mm-hmm. oh, this is actually a very accomplished piece of piece of work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Tokyo Godfather's my opinion's basically the same, uh, frankly. Um, <laughs> but I think that was kind of a misstep. But whatever. Um, and then Paprika's my wild card. Yeah, I I remember kind of thinking Paprika was a bit slight the first time I saw it. I thought it was like a whoa dude visual thing and and kind of felt like the story was nothing. When I rewatched it before we started doing this season, I I came away with a much higher opinion and now it's been a long enough time that I'm sure I will have a different opinion after rewatch number three. But since we are nearing the end, is there anything that you wanted to to mention possibly about like our plans for season three? You alluded to it before we got on the call. Sure. I did. Well, I want to, I want to hear from some of the listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time this is coming out, I think we're going to have a Patreon set up. And I mm-hmm. think Ian and I are talking about maybe doing another mailbag episode. So if you have questions, please send them in to us. I can't promise a time frame for that. But we'd love to answer some more questions. Yes. However, I have been sort of thinking about what we could cover in the future, not on the Patreon, but on the main feed. Right. I'd love to do a third season. Uh, and and sort of I've got a few different ways that I could go with it. And so I wanted to workshop them with you very, very briefly live on air. Not live. What the fuck? <laughs> Dead on air. Dead air. So first of all, here's just some things that I think are happening in the future that I'd love to do on the main feed is maybe one offs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think this year. We're going to get Shin Ultraman. Right. The the newest uh, Hedy Akiano feature. Correct. Film. The beginning of the Hideaki Anno, the 
Ono see you. Oh God. How do you even feel? (laughs) We'll, we'll get into it, but I feel as though after Kyle, what's up, Kyle read us the Ultraman riot act, right? I have, I must take a redemption shot. I feel like we should at least figure out what the fuck is up with Shin Ultraman. Mm hmm. Yeah. Right. Are we, our feet are already in that body of water. You know, we might as well keep swimming. (laughs) Sure. 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 So I think that's worth doing. We've talked a lot about Akira in the course of this series. Yeah. I'd love to do it once. Cause I, I don't know if Katsuhiro Otomo is definitely someone who's got a career as storied as cones that you could do a whole season on it. However, I don't know if it's all there for me. I I don't know if there's enough for a season, but I also agree that it might be, I'm, I'm of two minds. I feel like we should circle it as a possibility for something we do. Want, I, I think it would be smart to talk about Akira and find a, an, a new way to talk about Akira that maybe builds on the sort of staff and personnel angle that right. we went with for this season. That might be a, a more fruitful thing than just being like, yo, it's so sick when he does the bike slide, you know, although it is, it is sick, but you, you know that we know that every, everyone and their mother knows that. I, they don't yet, but they must like, I, mm. it is still worth, it is still worth telling people our mutual friends who still, who still have not tried to animate all like, look, there's some fucked up shit, but that bike slide. It's pretty fucking cool. It's worth a lot. I <laughs> <laughs> saw it 20 years ago. I'm still thinking about the first time I saw that bike slide, bro. I don't know. Um, okay. So those are some things that are happening in the future that I think are, are worth maybe doing a couple one offs about, but mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of what we could do for the future. And I've got, I've got a few options and I, I want to throw them out at you, see what you think. And I want to throw out the listeners, see if listeners think any of these are a good idea or if there's something I'm missing. Right. Yeah. Right. Cause I'm, I'm sure there's connections that we're not making that someone else can make. And we would love to hear about them. Mm-hmm. So we've just talked about perfect blue and in our perfect blue episode, we talked about sort of like the blockbuster anime DVD shelf. Holy Trinity. Mm hmm. One of them's perfect blue. And we just talked about Akira. Yep. The third one's ghost in the shell. Yes. And, and ghost in the shell is fascinating. I, I think we could do a, a whole bunch on ghost in the shell of episodes specifically because I think the two television series that they did afterward, I can't talk about the new CG when I haven't seen it, but standalone complex one and two are quite good. I think. Mm-hmm. However, that's a big commitment. Right. Yeah. Uh, it would take a lot of planning, but it's the kind of thing that if we're treating these seer- these seasons as like the big difficult stuff that the Patreon basically subsidizes, doing a Ghost in the Shell season would fit that description. Fits that description. Right. But it, it'd be, we'd probably have to do maybe fewer, fewer episodes of TV per episode of the podcast to make it work. Possibly. Mm. I don't know. Also, there's like... Uh, like there is even more research out there to be done on ghost in the shell. Yeah. Than there is on, on con. So, and there's not like one book to cover most of it. So like ghost in the shell has some challenge. It has some challenges. Uh, I do like a good challenge, but I, Me too. I, I am also interested to hear what the other possibilities would be from your perspective. We've, we've talked multiple times about serial experiments. Lane. Yep. That is true. It's that's sort of if there's the holy blockbuster trilogy of movies, then the holy trilogy of like smart dude, quote unquote, 90s <laughs> anime is 
Ava, yeah. Serial Experiments Lane, which mm-hmm. I think should be an option. And the third one is one I haven't seen. So I, I haven't really brought this up because I've been he- hesitant to go into something where I've seen literally none of it. Mm-hmm. Right. But I guess the third one's Revolutionary Girl Lutina. Yeah. 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 That's that has been on my mind as a possibility as well. I've seen one of the films and it's the 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 fans say the bad one, the weird, the weird one. Mm-hmm. And my recollection of it is, well, that was fucking weird. <laughs> and, and and that's all I remember. Like, they turn into cars. Why? No reason, apparently. So, like, I think that's on the list. There's some other things that I, I do feel bad about in our second season that we dove into something that's so hard for people to see. So I've thought about maybe some things that are more a little more accessible. Sure. Um, it's easier to see. Fooly Cooly. And it's a shorter show. <laughs> well, there's three seasons now, but yes, uh, yeah, it, but each yeah. season is, is short, but even if you did only the season one, I think we could probably do Fooly Cooly relatively quickly. And it's, mm-hmm. it's really interesting. I think, right. Everyone loves. So I'm hesitant to do it just because everyone loves it. If I'm honest, but everyone loves cowboy bebop. It's kind of unavoidable. Yeah. That, that to me seems like would have been the, the easy mode. Second season choice would have been, we talked about it. So like for for listeners know, like my pitch was maybe, maybe do cowboy bebop. And then like the reason I was then, then talked away from is I'm like, well, after you do bebop and Ava, what else is there? There's lots, but there is lots, but it, it felt maybe a bit front loading the, the, I agree. The popular stuff. I agree. And a couple maybe under the radar shots, but I think both these are actually easier to see than Utina or Lane. One of them is Madoka Magica. It's another one that we've yeah had on the on the back burner as a as a possibility for a while. Sharp inhale for Madoka Magica, but it is on HBO Max now. Oh, hey, it is. But I don't I don't know that my, like I need to do a lot of research on the people who made it. Yep. Right. That's another, I feel like that one in Utina would be a big stretch for us genre wise as well. And it's, that's another kind of challenge that I would appreciate. Cause I feel like you too. we've, we've sort of been boxing ourselves into the kind of like, yeah, dorm poster, smart guy, nineties, gen X, you know, disaffected philosophical shit. And it's like, well, maybe we want to look at something that has the same degree of seriousness and scrutiny, but facing in a totally different aesthetic direction. Different is that I think both of those are kind of dark in their own way. You, you, oh, absolutely! In Madoka yeah. Magica's case, <laughs> well, let's not let's not spoil it for people who haven't seen it. Um, that said, if you look at the poster, the the show they're selling you is not the show you're buying, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons I really like it. Um, and let me just throw one out there, just a personal one for me, that I'd love to revisit. I'd love to revisit Parasite. Ah, uh, yeah, that one is like. I've heard great things about it, but I've never seen it. And uh, it, it'd be interesting to do. Okay. If we do one of these ones where if you've seen it and I haven't seen it, mm-hmm. then the next one after that needs to be one I've seen. And you got a good argument there. <laughs> yeah. I give, I give parasite, but I have seen cons. So that doesn't mm-hmm. count for this, but I think I give parasite pretty high marks. And also don't you want to listen to 10 weeks of dubstep? I know I don't. <laughs> Well, that opens up. Yeah, if we're going to continue talking about the music as much as we do, there there might be some interest, some fun to be had in dealing with dubstep. Yeah, <laughs> on the, an anime podcast. Every season, we seem to do like one background episode, and the mm-hmm. background episode for Parasite should be horror manga, but it's just going to wind up being like. <laughs> 
how do dubstep and why? How right. did something that no one listens to anymore get so big that they did a whole fucking prestige series with nothing but this in the background? <laughs> Anyway, so those are those are some ideas I had. I'd love to get I'd love to get some reader takes. I know there's stuff I'm I'm that I haven't brought up that probably should be on the list. I should talk about psychopaths, maybe, or like mm. I know some people like Gantz. I don't know. There's probably some like 80s, 90s stuff I haven't thought about. Why sure. not Battleship Yamato? I why not Pat Labor? Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, maybe there's a short Gundam thing that you want me to watch or something, you know, like, okay. So the whole problem with Gundam is a, there's whole Gundam podcasts that are good. Right. But also like if the, the, the noob entry point to Gundam in America is wing and I like wing, but wing is not deep. (laughs) Like wing is not, Wing is is like if one of the dorm posters is Memento and that's Evangelion, Wing is just Scarface. Like it sure. looks cool, but there's not actually that much there beyond like, oh, they put angel wings on a Gundam. Right. And this that's one the, has it's a the top scythe. gun poster. Yeah. Right. It is yes. It is very there is a Tom Cruise energy to Gundam Wing. Which is I think why it translated in America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So I just, I, I just throw that out as like one other possibility just to keep people's, you know, minds rolling over this. If they have, if there's shows that we've alluded to over the course of the season, or if there's stuff that you've been like, I can't believe they didn't mention X, Y, Z. This is your chance to say, Hey, have you considered watching X, Y, or Z? Mm-hmm. Or give us a vote, vote of confidence for one of the things we just said. Now yep. I'm not saying we'll listen to you. I don't even listen to Ian half the time. <laughs> I don't even listen to myself a solid quarter <laughs> of the time. I'm surprised you people do. So, but I, I'd love the feedback anyway, mm-hmm. right? Like it's, it's good. It's good to know where your, where your heads are. Do you want a challenge? I feel like con was a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I you know, difficult second season for sure. Is there something that you all have just been dying to get into that you just find impenetrable? Like, mm-hmm. please, please let me know. Um, I'm just going to say, don't do JoJo's because we're doing JoJo's on the Patreon. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and I, I can't wait for Ian to finish. Uh, <laughs> Diamond is unbreakable. <laughs> yeah. I've got, I've got a lot of my own homework to do just for the Patreon. And again, like some of the stuff that you might suggest might end up as Patreon stuff. Like, I, we can't promise that everything that we want to cover will end up as a real season. I do want us to make these seasons feel like a distinct contained thing that we do and the Patreon to feel a bit looser and a bit more, you know, approachable and uh, off the cuff, uh, at least for now. But yeah, I think we've, we've given people enough stuff to consider both about paranoia agent and about the future of this show. Well, uh, they should know that if they do want to give us some feedback, that email address is humaninstrumentalitypod at gmail.com. That's my preferred method of communication. Although we do also respond to the Instagram. Yep. And in case you haven't uh, messaged us before, that Instagram handle is humaninstrumentalitypod. We're also on Twitter, but at a, another AvaPod, but it's, uh, you know, it's Twitter. 
Look, man, uh, I'm sure that Elon has watched Evangelion, which somehow makes me want to be on Twitter less. If indeed. <laughs> and with Did that. Did you hear he, he made a pass at Sky Fiera? Now I wonder, has Elon seen Lords of Chaos? There's a non-zero chance that he's seen Macaulay Culkin try to be a guy from Mayhem. I, I do the not. Other, Kieran Culkin. Kieran yeah, Culkin. I don't want to go down this train of thought any further i'm shutting this out i'm constructing my own maromi to plaster over thinking about fucking elon musk for any one second further Uh, break me out of his 2d world ian break me out until next time sweet dreams everyone Howdy, human instrumentaliteers. Joseph again. This week, the Human Instrumentality Podcast would like to thank our bridge crew, Jonathan Case, Josh Oakley, Four Peoples, and our newest addition, Ash. Good to see you here, friend. If you want to join the bridge crew for $5 a month, join us at patreon.com slash human instrumentality pod. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at another Ava pod and on Instagram at human instrumentality pod. Thanks again for joining us on this bizarre adventure. And as always, congratulations for making it through one more impact. We'll see you soon.